is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And we love telling immigrant stories here on this show. We've told so many. There are too many to mention. And one of our favorites was Horst Schultz's story, and he's the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton an author of Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in the world of compromise. And we were so blown away by the story and got such great feedback that we all wanted to hear more from Horst because he had so much wisdom to confer through his storytelling. And without further ado, here's Horst talking about how to live a life and giving advice in the end to so many of us who have kids and so many of us who are just stumbling through our own lives. Take it away, Horst. The key I try to give young people, I try to give my children and so on, you define yourself. If you, you, know, you know, Forgive me, anybody who, who does it, but let me tell you, if you, as a young man, spike your hair, color them green, and, and, and look like a bum, you're defining yourself as a bum, period. And, you know, forgive me, but that's a fact. You define yourself, and, and, and it's up to you what you define. I'm not, not telling you what you have to do, but understand, you define yourself every moment. I tell the story about the bank there in, in the book. It, 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 this was a traumatic moment. If you really think about it, and it's a true story, by the way, I lived in Chicago, and I knew the bank very well. They advertised. I've never been in a bank. But in the meantime, I was, have started here in Atlanta, and I was invited by them, by that bank, to talk to the 300 manager, and I'll forget it, about customer service, customer satisfaction, service. Got it the day before. Again, I knew them well. They advertised service all the time. But the day before, I thought, gee, I've never been in that bank. Tomorrow, somebody is bound to say, have you been in our bank? And I better be able to say yes. So I went to that bank. Now, walking into this, outside the building already, magnificent, stately, and, and you walk in, I mean, marble floor, marble pillars, you can feel the money all around you. It is very impressive, very... Wow, and all the way over there, a long counter to tell us, and in front of the maze. So I walk into the maze. Now, what is service? We have to establish here what is service. It starts with welcome, complying to the wishes, and farewell. That's service. Welcome, comply, farewell. What's the expectation of the customer when they come by anything? We must understand that. You or I or anybody has the same subconscious expectation, no matter what you buy. If it is legal service or a bottle of water or a car or radio, you have the same subconscious expectations. You want no defect. You want your product to be right. You want timeliness. You don't want to wait for your bottle of water. You want it when you want it. And you want the people who give it to you to be nice to you. Those are the three things that I, so if, if, if I know as a business, this is what people expect from me, I build processes to deliver it. So I'm in, in, the, in the maze, not long, I'm timeliness now. I'm number one, I look left and somebody on the right screams, next, 
That was the first step of service. I come to her teller, was a woman, by the way, men are usually worse in service, was a lady. I, she, when, as I reached her teller, she looks down, finishes some transaction for one second or two. I see her face. I don't know her. She, she doesn't know me. But when she looked up, it was very clear that she hated me. And she said, yes. Yes. I said, just want to change $50. She actually sighed. And she said, 10, 20, 45, 50, next. And I look at my product. My change is a product. No defect. The timeliness was good, but the individual service was non-existent. What could she have done? She could have said, the next gentleman, please. Come to tell her, welcome, sir. How may I help you? Just want to change $50. That's my pleasure. 10, 12, 45, 50. Have a wonderful day. Bang. What happened to me? I was dissatisfied. I was a terrorist. The number two treatment, I would have been satisfied. It was fine. It wouldn't have cost her more. It wouldn't have done any harm. It would, it would have been so easy. Or there could have been a third way of serving me. She could have said, the next gentleman, please. When I come to a teller, ideally, she would have called me, welcome, Mr. Schulze. Now, in this case, she wouldn't know my name. I understand that. But that is the ideal service, personalized. Welcome, Mr. Schulze. How may I help you? Just want to change $50. Ideally, she would have said 10, 20, 45, and here are four coins, five coins, because I know you collect coins, individualized to me. Now that is great service. Then I would have moved immediately to a level of trust and loyalty. But what should she do? She did the first thing that I explained. She said, next. And she treated me as if she was angry that I was there. So what did I do? For the next 15 years, I used them for an example as, as lousy service. What happened here? She defined the bank. She defined her fellow workers. That can't happen. You can't let that happen in an organization. That one employee defines you. And, and, and I didn't say Susie mistreated me. I said that bank is a poor bank. So well said. And this goes for everything, whether you're representing your family, your company, your country. It matters how you present yourself. And it takes such a little bit more effort. But it's so different. It differentiates you from everyone else when you go that extra. Forget yard. I think what Horst is saying is go the extra mile. Heck, you're there anyway. Next. I also hate no problem. I ask somebody for something and they say, no problem. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was a problem. Um, never a thank you. Rarely eye contact. It's just remarkable. And that's spending $6 on a coffee for my little girl. No problem. Horst Schultz, his story, so many stories this man has. And his book, Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a world of compromise. These stories here on Our American Story. (music) 
And we continue with Our American Stories, and now we take an irreverent look at a controversial confection that has stirred much debate over the years. Candy corn. Here's Our American Stories staff with a story. Hello, this is Alex Cortez. And, and before we do this, I just want to say that I think candy corn is pretty pitiful. And, all right, it's not like I have some beef with candy corn, but in the world of candy, why would someone choose it over a Reese's, Kit Kat, Butterfinger, Crunch, Snickers, Gummy Worms, Peeps, Junior Mints, Jelly Ranchers, Peppermint Patties, a Baby Ruthie, Peanut Butter M&M's, Rollo's, Charleston Chews, and a million other members of this beautiful marketplace of candy that we call America. I gotta say, though, candy corn is a pretty unique candy, and I do like having one single piece during Halloween. Am I a hypocrite? Perhaps. But I don't think that's gonna keep candy corn in business. Apparently, other citizens feel differently about this stuff. And finally, here's Jesse. According to a recent survey of over 30,000 Americans, candy corn was listed as the worst candy on the planet somewhere between circus peanuts and Necco wafers. Always perceived as the unwanted bastard child of the candy world, candy corn is apparently here to stay. But where did it come from, and why is it here? Somebody is eating it, but nobody seems to want to admit it. We want to know why. And it's not just for Halloween anymore. According to the National Confectioners Association, they sell more than 35 million pounds of the stuff every year. That's roughly 9 billion pieces of candy corn. Well more than enough for every person on the planet. Sometime around 1880, when wax was a popular ingredient in children's candy, a man named George Renninger, an employee at the Wonderly Candy Company of Philadelphia, came up with the idea. Oh, hello. Mixing sugar, corn syrup, artificial coloring, binding agents, marshmallows, icing, and caranuba wax, Renninger poured the concoction into corn-shaped molds. Caranuba wax gives candy corn that waxy texture and shine. It's also the main ingredient in surfboard wax. Fast forward 18 years, and in 1898, the Golitz Candy Company, which later became Jelly Belly, acquired the recipe and started marketing it as novelty candy chicken feed for children. You see, before World War I, Americans didn't really eat a lot of corn because it hadn't been introduced into our diet until it was used to feed soldiers. See, sweet corn is picked when the plant is immature and very tender. But field corn is left to grow rough and large. It's still used to feed pigs, chickens, and cows. And it's considered yellow gold in the Midwest. There are over 80 million acres of it growing in the Great Corn Belt from northwestern Nebraska to eastern Ohio and right on next door into Pennsylvania, where candy corn was born. The United States is by far the world's largest producer and exporter of corn. It's been the leading crop in Iowa for more than 150 years. Iowa produces more corn than the entire country of Mexico. On average, Iowa grows 183 bushels of corn per acre. Corn is an ingredient in more than 4,000 everyday grocery items. 
A single bushel can sweeten about 400 cans of soda. It's also used in cake, cookies, dessert mixes, baby food, cereals, chewing gum, bread, chips, chocolate, soups, hot dogs, ice cream, jams, marshmallows, pet food, donuts, batteries, blankets, cardboard, chalk, cleaners, detergents, crayons, cosmetics, plates, cups, ink, insecticides, matches, paper, plastic, shampoo, and shoe polish, fuel. It's no wonder, then, that we have a candy corn, a tribute to the humble colonel that has so much to offer. There's even a National Candy Corn Day on October 30th. You can find candy corn cocktail recipes. How about some candy corn pajamas or underwear? There's even a candy corn spring-loaded launcher that can send pieces of candy corn across the street. Joining us now to talk about candy corn is our American Story staff writers Robert Davis III and Matthew Montgomery. Robert, what do you got for us? Candy corn. Well, I'm not a big sweets guy to begin with, so if I'm going to have a sugary treat, it's got to be worth it. It's not that candy corn is bad, per se. It's just next to a eclair or cannoli, some moose tracks ice cream. Ooh, creme brulee. Well, it just doesn't stack up. I'd say that's an apt analysis. Uh, let's turn now to Matthew Montgomery. Matthew, what are your thoughts on candy corn? So I am by far the youngest person on the staff here. Um, Fresh out of college, and I can remember vividly when I used to trick-or-treat because it was less than 10 years ago that I did it. And candy corn was the type of thing that you loathed to get, and it would end up on the bottom of your bag every single year, and you just wouldn't eat it. Until Christmas, that is, at least for me. And the reason why that was was I had this clear, uh, I guess it was, a filing cabinet in my room like it had been bought from Ikea by my parents when I was maybe nine and I used it to store a whole bunch of random trash I had in my room including my Halloween candy because I didn't like to keep my bag in the corner of the room uh, because it felt like it wasn't stowed away and so I would dump the candy in the bottom drawer of this thing and I would eat it over a period of time like I wasn't a kid who would just go ham on candy and finish it all the day after Halloween. I wasn't like that. I, I like to sparse it out and have stuff to come home to from middle school and, you know, just just chew on. And I would never go for the candy corn. And it was always just too sweet, too waxy for me. But the thing was, I would always inevitably end up eating the candy corn. And I would always end up eating it around Christmas time because that's the time when the candy would start to run out, you know. Or maybe like by Thanksgiving. And even then, I don't get why people think that candy corn is a Thanksgiving treat, because it, it's not. It's not a treat in general. But I, I just attach it quintessentially to Halloween and about a month thereafter, excluding Thanksgiving. Um, but I would always just have loads and loads and loads of candy, uh, of candy corn and also these malt balls that I didn't like. I think my sister had thrown up by eating one before and that sort of ruined it for me for that but unfortunately i never had any negative experience connected with candy corn not to eat it other than out of necessity like you you wanted sugar when you were young and you would do anything to get it and i think i even like went into the kitchen and got butter at one point and dipped it in my mom's uh, sugar vat and ate that so you know candy corn was a bit of a necessity it was like, um, I don't know what the soldiers eat on the battlefield. I forgot the exact name for it. But it was like that for a 12-year-old. And 
if I ever have kids, I'm going to ban them from eating candy corn. It is borderline child abuse. I'd rather my kid just down sugar in the kitchen than eat candy corn. It is something I will never want to put my kids through. And they should also ban it in schools. It, it, it is a weapon of mass destruction against the young minds in America, young impressionable minds. And for some godforsaken reason, some of these kids, uh, they end up liking it. And I don't get why they do. It, it's just weird. Candy corn is atrociously terrible. Terrible. <laughs> Matthew Montgomery, ladies and gentlemen, I'd also like to thank Robert Davis III for his commentary as well. Well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. While we couldn't quite find anyone in the studio who would admit to actually eating candy corn, we all know someone out there is eating it. At least 35 million pounds every year. Let's hope somebody's eating it. What else could they be doing with it? Let us know what you think about candy corn. Record your thoughts and commentary on a smartphone or a computer and send it to us. You can find our email address at OurAmericanStories.com. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Well, thanks to the whole team. We've learned so much. Actually, maybe a little too much about some of you. (laughs) And a confession here. Here's the reason, folks, and I really get into the weeds on how we make this show. But this story started because I came in one morning in our story session, and I had gone out with my little girl, and we were at the candy aisle, and I said, I grabbed candy corn. And my daughter looked at me like I'd sprung a second head. She goes, you're eating candy corn? I said, I like candy corn. She said, you're crazy. And so I came in and said, we should do a story on the history of candy corn. Why not? And thanks, Jesse. Thanks, the whole team. Uh, We'd love to hear your thoughts on all kinds of irreverent things. We don't do opinions here on this show about anything that separates people. But I do think that periodically we can hear the opinions of the staff on something like candy corn. Again, send your opinions, your stories about candy or anything else. But anyone doing trick-or-treating or remember it knows that that candy corn person who didn't give you the Snickers bar or didn't give you the Milky Way was just giving you filler and feed. And so when you're out there filling up kids' pails, give them a little candy corn, but hit up, hit up a Snickers bar or something else of substance, too. A little bit of levity here. Our American stories. The story of candy corn, a true American concoction. Here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, life-changing stories of faith, love, and laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an eighth-grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan. 
during World War II. And here's Michael with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and, and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player. and He enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima were 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection because he was scared. He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, the third guy in this tableau was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. He knew he was talking to boys. Instead, he would say, you guys do what I say, and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, Son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, How can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive. So think about this. You, you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach. 
but only 27 of your classmates walk off alive? That was Ira Hayes. He had images of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk, face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sowsley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning. And the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad. John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, No, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table, eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. And Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima, and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out, and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, the monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. By the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. 
And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. This is Our American Stories, Michael Powers' story, James Bradley's story, and his father's. our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Our next story comes to us from a man who is simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here at Our American Stories. The June 4th, 1974 night game between the Texas Rangers and the Cleveland Indians was one for the record books. To say there was a buzz in the crowd Well, that would be an understatement. Here's the history guy with that story of the 10 cent beer night riot. 1974 was a depressing news year in the United States. President Richard Nixon was embroiled in the Watergate scandal, which would eventually force him to resign in November, the first US president to do so. The United States economy was in a deep recession, the result of double digit inflation and the ongoing energy crisis. Patricia Hearst, the granddaughter of publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped in February and by April had claimed that she had joined her captor's cause, leading to nightly news stories. And on June 4th, in the event that perhaps best defined the trying times of the day, beer was too cheap in Cleveland, Ohio. It is history that deserves to be remembered. It was Tuesday, June 4th, and the Texas Rangers were playing a night game at Cleveland Stadium, the first of a three-game series. Cleveland Municipal Stadium, the first sports venue in the United States built entirely with public financing, opened in 1931. It was one of the first multi-purpose stadiums and had been home to the Cleveland Indians since its opening, and to the Cleveland Browns, originally with the All-American Football Conference and then with the National Football League since 1946. When configured for baseball, the stadium seated 74,400 fans, making it the largest in professional baseball in 1974. But Cleveland was a struggling city. Noted for its river pollution, the Cuyahoga River through the city was famous for literally catching fire. One such fire in 1969 had caught the attention of the nation via Time magazine, prompting the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. The Cleveland area had been a flashpoint for anti-Vietnam War sentiment after shootings by the National Guard at nearby Kent State University in 1970. The city was in financial difficulty. Crime was on the rise. In 1962, there had been 59 murders in Cleveland. In 1972, there were 333. The city had a difficult reputation and people were leaving in droves. The city lost roughly 177,000 inhabitants between 1970 and 1980. And the Cleveland Indians simply weren't very good. They'd finished at the bottom of the American League East in 1973 and weren't doing much better in 1974. Commentator Paul Jackson of ESPN said of them, The 74 Indians were a smorgasbord of mediocre and forgettable talent. 
playing in an open-air mausoleum. It had become difficult to fill the massive 74,400-seat stadium. On May 13th, a mere 4,234 had showed up on a chilly night for a game against Boston. On average, 85% of the stadium's tickets went unsold. But the game against Texas on the muggy night June 4th attracted a respectable 25,134 crowd, twice what was expected. The reason? Cheap beer. The club was running a promotion, 12 fluid ounce cups of Stroh's 3.2% beer for just 10 cents each. There was a limit of six beers per purchase, but no limit on the number of purchases made during the game. The promotion wasn't new. Several teams in the league, including Texas, had done the promotion. Cleveland had done its first such promotion in 1971, when the beer was only five cents. Bud Tucker, a columnist for the Independent Press-Telegram of Long Beach, California, quipped, As a Frenchman is inspired by fine wine, or a Russian by classic vodka, so does a Clevelander react to ten-cent beer. The late Tim Russert, known for being the longtime moderator of the show Meet the Press, was 24 at the time and attended the game. In a statement that perhaps defined much of the crowd that night, he said, I had two dollars in my pocket. You do the math. Perhaps there was more going on that night than cheap beer. It was particularly hot and muggy. The June date caught the college-age crowd just as they were coming home for summer, and as Anthony Kastrovitz of MLB.com noted in 2014, it was a full moon that night. In fact, witnesses note that much of the crowd seemed to have not waited for the cheap beer, and many seemed to have arrived already drunk or high. And for some reason, they also showed up with their pockets stuffed with firecrackers. The crowd started throwing them before the game even started, and they continued throughout. The rowdiness may have had something to do with the team's last meeting a week earlier, on May 29th in Arlington, which had had a bench-emptying brawl during the eighth inning of what would be a Rangers 3-0 victory. Rangers fans had thrown beer and food at the Indians team as they were returning to the dugout. The Indians were furious. Catcher Dave Duncan had to be restrained to keep him from going into the stands to brawl with the crowd. Indian second baseman Jay Brohammer, who had been at the bottom of the pile, promised revenge. Rangers manager Billy Martin added to the fuel. After the game, a Cleveland reporter asked him if he was afraid of fans retaliating in Cleveland. He responded, Nah, they don't have enough fans to worry about. Cleveland media kept the city riled over the course of the next week. On the morning of the 4th, several newspapers ran a story recalling the May 29th fight and noting, hopefully, the battling will be strictly in the form of baseball. The Newark Advocate of Newark, Ohio, ran the story under the headline, Rangers and Indians to resume base brawling. Brohammer was quoted as saying that he had cooled down and wasn't looking for a fight. Instead, he hoped to get revenge by winning all three games of the upcoming series. The Cleveland fans, on the other hand, might have been making plans of their own. Texas quickly cooked the lead in the second inning after a home run by outfielder Tom Grieve. But a buzz was in the air, or rather, in the crowd. At the end of the second inning, a woman hopped the fence, ran over to the Indians on deck circle, ripped off her shirt, bearing her breast to the raucous approval of the crowd, and then tried to kiss the umpire. Amazingly, it wasn't the weirdest thing that would happen that night, nor the only act of exhibitionism. The fun was not all good-natured. Not only was the crowd throwing firecrackers and keeping the grounds crew busy throwing garbage onto the field, but when Rangers pitcher Fergie Jenkins got hit in the stomach with a line drive, the crowd started chanting, hit him again. Meanwhile, the beer kept flowing. Unable to keep up, the vendors reportedly gave up trying to check IDs and started filling up whatever container was handed to them. This has been a night of blatant stupidity. 19-year-old fan Terry Yurkic recalled, I had a big dog and suds mug, maybe 32 ounces. Looked like a mini keg. 
Another witness said that as the crowd, which he described as notably younger and longer haired than usual, grew progressively more drunk, there were some antics every half inning or so. Young fans ran onto the field to dodge security. When Grieve hit a second home run in the fourth, extending the Rangers' lead to 5-1, to one, a naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base. Now there's another group of morons running around in the outfield. In the fifth inning, a father-son team jumped onto the field and booned the crowd. Another streaker ran across the field carrying his clothes with him, but still wearing his left sock. As he approached the fence, he threw his clothes over, planning his escape. The crowd could see what he could not. A Cleveland police officer was on the other side of the fence, catching both the clothes and the, uh, offender. The game had to be halted in the sixth, as the crowd was throwing firecrackers into the bullpen. Umpire Nestor Shylak cleared the bullpen, but was trying to let play continue. Fans were no longer just throwing beer and firecrackers, but also rocks, batteries, and any part of the stadium that wasn't bolted down. A group of fans started trying to tug the padding off the left field wall, drawing the grounds crew away from picking up the growing pile of trash that was landing on the field. Despite the antics, the game continued, and Cleveland managed to tie the game at 5-all in the bottom of the ninth, with two out and the winning run on second. But then 19-year-old Terry Yurkic, the fan with the Dogs and Suds mug, decided that he wanted a souvenir. It was not a good decision. He jumped the fence, ran up behind Texas outfielder Jeff Burroughs, and grabbed his hat. There's some controversy regarding what happened next. According to Yurkic, Burroughs kicked him. But because of the slope of the diamond from the Rangers' dugout, all Billy Martin could see was Burroughs' legs, and it looked like he'd been knocked down. More fans were climbing onto the field, and Martin thought, Jeff was out there all by himself. I saw knives and other things. We just couldn't let our teammate get beat up. He ordered his team onto the field, carrying bats to protect Burroughs. It was not a good decision. Seeing the Rangers leave the dugout sparked the already riled and inebriated mob. Fans stormed the field, greatly outnumbering the players. Now it's a full-scale riot. There has to be 200 people and more coming on the field. Martin recalled, now I know how the people of the Alamo felt. The crowd was carrying knives, chains, clubs made from stadium seats. Stadium security was overwhelmed, although it's hard to see what they could have done in any case, and no one had considered asking for a greater police presence. Seeing the melee and Rangers players being injured, Aspermonte ordered the Indians onto the field. Hargrove has got some kid on the ground and he is really administering well, a beating. filling him up and hit him from behind is what happened. The two teams who had been fighting each other so recently made common cause against the mob. Oh, this is absolute tragedy. I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. Outnumbered, they fought their way back to the dugouts and retreated into the locker rooms behind locked doors. Shylak, bleeding from a cut on his head from a thrown bottle, called the game as soon as the players made it inside. He said he didn't do it earlier for fear it would spark retaliation against the players. The game was called a forfeit, going into the record books as a 9-0 loss for the Indians. Fans kept rioting, stealing everything they could take, including, literally, stealing the stadium's bases. So really, the organist played Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Director of Stadium Operations Dan Zerbe ordered the lights shut off, and the Cleveland police arrived and restored order. They turned the lights out. Everybody's gone except for 15 teenagers standing on top of the Rangers' dugout, chanting for the Rangers to come out and fight. And so I went up there and asked them, what are you, what are you trying to prove? Because the Rangers are gone. So some kid behind another one reaches out and punches me right in the jaw. He didn't even stagger me. He hit like a girl. Despite the apparent violence, there were no serious injuries and less than a dozen arrests. Area hospitals reported seven people treated and released. Tencent Beer Night perhaps summed up well a dismal decade for Cleveland and their baseball team. 
The prospects for both would eventually improve, but not really until the 1990s. And you've been listening to the History Guy tell, well, just a great American story. Not a good one, but boy, a great one. And my goodness, I love what Tim Russert, the former host of Meet the Press, said. He was 24. He was there, a big sports fan, a big Buffalo sports fan. He said, I had $2 in my pocket. You do the math. I did do the math. That's at least 20 beers. And even for someone who can hold it down, trouble lurks. A great American story, a great sports story, and in the end, a little bit of the American character revealed, and perhaps not the most beautiful part, but a funny part. The story of the 10-cent beer night riot in Cleveland, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And we love to tell stories about faith whenever we can, and redemption. And this is one of our best redemption stories, brought to us by our very own Joey Cortez. Ron Brown grew up on the west side of Chicago. I grew up in a family where my uncles were, were drug dealers and pimps, and I saw that growing up as a kid, and it never appealed to me. I can remember as a kid seeing my uncles get shot and different things like that, and, you know, one, one guy tried to murder my uncle, and, 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 just, and just seeing it and just being a kid, like five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, growing up being like, this ain't the way this is supposed to be. I, I, I watch certain stories and, and kids say growing up in the inner city, how they saw drug dealers and that's the only people they saw. And, and for them, they saw that as a, as a means to an end to get out the ghetto or to, as a kid, I don't know what God blessed me with, but he blessed me with the ability to see that I was wrong. And that wasn't the way for me to go about my life. He was also blessed with a strong mother who divorced his biological father when Ron was a kid. I can remember he was part of an accident fraud scheme. And I remember being a kid telling him, I was like, hey, man, this, this, you're going to get in trouble. He'd say, son, you know what? I'm making my living the best way I know how. And eventually he ended up going to prison for a few years for that. And I can remember being a kid and him writing me letters and saying, hey, you know, when I get out, things are going to be different. I'm going to spend more time with you. Um, I think it's important. And the thing was, he got out and nothing ever changed. He went back to what he knew and he ended up being in the streets for a few more years and he went to jail. My dad was like the real, you ever seen the movie Catch Me If You Can? He was like the real Catch Me If You Can. You understand what I'm saying? When it came to doing checks and stuff like that. And so I can remember having that example from a very young age and seeing all the cars and houses. And I was like, it just never appealed to me. My mother was fortunate enough and I was fortunate enough. She got married when I was about three or four years old to a great man by the name of Lawrence Hunt. And uh, he was my stepfather and he did everything in his power to just raise me the right way. And I'm so appreciative for that influence. Even right now as a 45 year old man, I think about the lessons in which he taught me and just different things about manhood and responsibility and all those things. And so um, I think having a father made a, a, a drastic difference in my life. My mother was a pretty tough lady. I mean, beyond measure, she was a pretty strong, tough lady. Uh, she's about 6'2", 6'3". 
and uh, she didn't play. And my stepfather was about six, five. And he didn't play either. So um, I grew up in a home where um, my parents were really about education. That was very important to them. I remember being a kid and saying, hey, you know, I want to be a professional athlete. I want to do this. I want to do that. And my parents were always like, look, you know, that's a great goal. But let me give you an amazing dream. Whatever you can do with your mind instead of your body will facilitate you to have a very, very lengthy career. I can remember my father getting tickets to take me to go see uh, the Chicago Bulls. And I was sitting there watching them playing and Michael Jordan was lighting them up that night. I think he might have had about 45 points or something. And the, 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 the arena, everybody was yelling and screaming and, and, and I'm eating my popcorn and I'm looking and I got a pretzel in one hand and popcorn on the floor and drinking a drink and I'm having my best time ever. And he taps me on the shoulders when the Bulls call a timeout. And he says, son, let me ask you something. I said, what? He says, who has the greatest job in this whole arena? And I kind of looked at him because I thought it was a crazy question. And I was like, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan has the greatest job. Everybody's yelling for him. Everybody's screaming for him. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you see that box up there with those guys walking around eating those hot dogs? And I said, yeah. He says, they have the best job in the building. They're the ones who pay Michael Jordan. And so even though people may not be screaming for him, they're the reason why all this is going on. So I want you to learn the big picture approach to life. And so that just really kind of got me thinking in life. They said, you know what? Mike's going to retire one day, but the Bulls are still going to be here. Mike's going to have an injury one day. But guess what? The Bulls are, the Bulls are still going to be here. And he's like, that's what I'm getting. I want, to, I want you to learn about life. Being the guy that's still there as transitions continue to happen through life. And that lesson really, really stayed with me all through life. You know, it was a big lesson for me. My father, I'm going to tell you something. It, it wasn't a good experience with him growing up. But those bad experiences with him made me, I think today, a much better father. So he would say, hey, I'm going to pick you up. You know, so get dressed. We're going to go. We're going to hang out for the day. And so my mother would say, hey, look, don't, don't make this kid promises and you not show up. And I can remember one particular time getting dressed up. I mean, I had on my pants and my shirt and my tie and sitting it out the window. And I paged him and said, hey, I paged him. He called me. I said, hey, I'm ready. He says, OK, I'll be there in a little while. And I can remember sitting in the window, dressed up and looking out the window and waiting on my father to come and waiting on him to come until the point that I fell asleep. And my stepfather picking me up and putting me to bed and taking my shoes off. And I kind of woke up as he was picking me up. I said, did he come? And he said, no, he didn't come. He says, but you know what? I'm here. And I always remember that memory, you know? And so for me, anything with my, with my children, um, I don't care if it's a basketball game. I don't care if it's a football game. If I tell them I'm coming, I'm coming. And so through the years, I never hated my father because he was my father. But I didn't understand. And so with that, I was able to find out how he grew up that, you know, his father one day said he was going out to the store to go get a, a pack of cigarettes. And he asked him and his brother, what do you want? And they said they wanted some candy. He said, OK, I'll be back. His father never came back. And he may have been like six, five or six. He never saw his father again. And so at that point, I kind of realized that my father didn't know how to be a father because he never had that example. So I grew up with those things. And, and I'll tell you something. Of course, they shape you, but I didn't let them break me. And I think some of these situations in our lives, they break us and they turn us into broken people. And so from, from that moment on in my life, as, as I went up, I had, like I said, I had a great stepfather. I was just very determined that I would never do that to my kids. And so no child of mine can say, hey, I sat there on the doorstep and waited for my dad to come and he didn't come. 
And that's important to me. And you're listening to Ron Brown and his real dad, his biological dad. Well, he was a character right out of Catch Me If You Can. Just a black version, passing checks, living a bad life, making bad choices. He grew up, though, in a home that was all about education, a stepdad that really loved him right. He said, those bad experiences with my biological father made me a better father. And I never hated my father. I didn't understand him until I learned about how he grew up. His father's father, when he was five or six years old, went to the corner store and never came back. When we come back, more of Ron Brown's story here on Our American Story. American stories and Ron Brown's story. We left off with Ron describing his difficult relationship with his absent father and the lessons he learned from that. Back to Ron with the rest of this story. The funny story about it is that he came to my high school graduation at Holy Trinity and he made a big deal about it and he told me he was so proud of me for graduating high school. And um, I think I saw him a little bit over that summer and I never saw him again. I didn't see him again until... 20 years later, which is really kind of crazy because he had a brother and his brother had died. And so I think I was living in Atlanta at the time and I got word that my father had died and I thought he had actually died, but it was kind of some confusion. So for years, I thought he was dead. A few summers after that, my wife sent some information in for us to be on the Family Feud. And so we become contestants on the Family Feud with Steve Harvey and they tape it up in Atlanta and we go ahead and we have this this show and we lose by one question and we were like man we came all the way up here we had a good time but it would have been nice if we would have won and so this is where I think about how everything happens for a reason well fast forward years later because after you do a family feud episode they keep playing the episode over and over and over and over and over again and so it stays in rotation for years and so I had just started law school and I was making a trek from Atlanta to Birmingham three nights a week for school And it was one particular night I was leaving criminal law class and I get a phone call from a number I had never seen before. And I was like, who's this calling me this late? It's about, I don't know, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And I answered the phone and it's just something about your parents' voice. You never forget it. And even though I hadn't heard my father's voice for 20 plus years, the phone rings and I answer it. And he says, hello, son. And at that moment, I just broke down and cried. I had to pull over to the side of the road of Highway 20. And I was like, Dad? And he was like, son, I've been looking for you. And I was like, I've been looking for you. I was like, how did you get my number? And it was a ray of emotions. And and, and, and I was crying and he was crying. And he said, you know, I, I went did some time and, you know, I lost track of you when I got out and I didn't know where you were. He said, I always knew you. You always said you wanted to be in business. You want to be a businessman. And I looked and looked. And he says, I'm going to tell you something. I actually was sitting down with my girlfriend the other night. We were watching Family Feud. He says, I never watched Family Feud. It's her favorite show. And, and, and it came to you and you said your name. And he said, that's my son. And she said, that's not your son. He's like, no, that's my son. That's who I've been looking for. That's my son. He's like, she didn't believe me. He says, well, what he did was he listened to my mother-in-law, Don White. When you do that, the, the family feud, they ask you, what do you do and where do you live and all that? And so at that moment in time, she was a senior VP for Coca-Cola. And she said that. 
And so his girlfriend and him called Coca-Cola. They got in contact with her and she did some vetting. I didn't even know this was going on, but she did some vetting and to make sure he, who he said he was. And then they called my wife and they went on three way. And my wife was like, we thought you were dead. And he's like, no, that's my brother. And so on and so on. And they gave him my number and we talked and I just cried like a baby. And we talked for about an hour. And I just told him, you know what, despite everything in the world, I still love you and you're my father. You're the reason why I'm here. And that was very important to me because I lost my mother back when I was 27 years old. So him and I kind of reconnected when I was probably like around 38, 38 years old. And so that was a powerful moment for me because as a man, even though I had a wife and a children, I had uh, loving cousins and I have one uncle that exists. You still feel a level of loneliness because my parents, you know, I felt that both my parents were gone and it just, I would always ask myself, well, who buries me? You know, if something happens to me, you know, um, and of course you have a wife and like I said, children, but you think about that. And there was a kind of a, a loneliness in me because of not having closure, I guess, with him. But due to the fact that he was still alive, we went ahead and put our relationship back together that night. I actually ended up flying to go see him two days later and I spent my birthday with him. But I can give you an irony of that, though. My wife had had our our second son, Jackson. And so she said, what do you want to name him? And we got some names. I said, we're going to name him Jackson. I said, but his middle name is going to be Owen. And so my wife was very surprised. She was like, why would you name him Owen? Your father and you guys didn't have the best relationship. Why would you name him Owen? I said, you know what? Despite us not having the greatest relationship, I still love my father. And I wanted him to be better. And at that time in his life, maybe he couldn't be. I said, but you know what? I forgive him for everything that's happened in my life. I, I just forgive him. And I can't hold on to it. And I said, you know, Jackson Owen Brown you know, he'll make that name good. You know, this kid will never go to the penitentiary. This kid will do something great with his life and will have his grandfather's name. And so my wife thought that was very powerful. And she said, okay, his name will be Jackson Owen Brown. Well, the irony of that is that my son was born around that time, like about two weeks before my father came back in my life. So I, I don't know if people think about life and letting things go and getting right with God or getting right with who you are as an individual. But I actually believe in my heart that of me making that decision to forgive my father for everything that I have in the past, every hurt, every hardship, every disappointment and giving my youngest son his name. I think for some way that opened a door and that allowed us to find each other. And that's been seven years ago. And so now that I'm a grown man and he's a grown man, of course, he's in his um, latter 60s, we talk every other day and we have a great father and son relationship, something that I always wanted that I never imagined having later in life. But that's my guy. He came to my law school graduation and he was very proud. And he looked and said, you know what, to see how I did everything wrong in life and to see that you did so much right. I'm just so proud of you. So that's a that's that's a big part of my journey. So even though he didn't start off being the most amazing dad in the world, Years later, he's become a great, 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 a great dad and a great grandfather. You know, something my parents would always teach me, my mom always taught me was the importance of forgiveness, that nobody's perfect. And she always just said that. She's like, there's there's no such thing as a perfect person um, that, that just doesn't exist. And everyone does something wrong. And she would always talk about, you know, when Jesus would say, who could throw the first stone? And no one can throw the first stone. And even though he didn't get it right. I was open to allowing him to get it right. I was open. I think you have to be open sometimes, but 
my parents always taught me the importance of forgiveness. And, and it's a big thing. You have to forgive because here you are carrying that around with you. I just really think that it just really, really erodes your spirit. It erodes everything in you because you're carrying around the baggage and the hurt of something that happened years and years and years ago. And when you can't get over it and you can't move past it, it keeps you locked in that place. One of my good friends, he's a mentor of mine. He always said that anger is, is, is a wasted emotion. Anger will cost you a lot in your life. There are a lot of people sitting in the penitentiary right now because they were angry in a second and they did something that if they could take back, they would. And so I just learned the importance of just, you can't hold on to it. Sometimes you got to move on and move past it, but you can't hold on to it because it keeps you stuck. So there's a line in the Bible where Jesus said, how many times should you forgive somebody? And it's an enormous numbers, like 60 times, 60 times. You know, it's, it's really kind of crazy that that's what the Lord and Savior says that, that you should. And I'll give you the greatest story of that is that Jesus knew that Judas was going to be a Judas. You know, J Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed by Judas, but Jesus still continued the journey with him. And so it was all the fact that he knew he was going to betray him, but he still loved him. And that's an important message right there. He, he still loved him. He, he knew he was going to do what he did, but he still loved him and he kept him around. If you read the Bible, you know, there was points where, you know, they kind of felt that he was stealing, but Jesus was so in love with the man and the relationship that that didn't even matter. And that's pretty tough in this day and age for someone to still love someone, even though that's the way it is. But you know what? I equate that to like a true father's love. You know, our kids don't always do what we want them to do. They don't always go the way we want them to go but they're still our children and we still love them and we still de desire relationships with them and we still wish them well. And I think that's how God looks at us on the throne, even though we get up in the morning and maybe we have great intentions and some people have bad intentions, but they go out here and they do things, but he's still in love with you. He's still in love with who you are and the door is always open for you to come back. There's nothing you've done that's been too enormous that God can't forgive. And I think that's the most powerful thing about the Christian faith is that the door is always open for you. And I'm nowhere near Jesus Christ. I'm nowhere near God. But I've learned the importance of keeping the door open because people can change. People can change. What a message from Ron Brown. And when faith is a part of people's lives, we put it right out there. And his forgiveness, which came straight from his faith, well, it opened a door. And my goodness, what a door it opened. He was able to give his father the opportunity to be the dad he wasn't. And he said, now my dad, who didn't start off as a good father, is now a great father and a great grandfather. And my goodness, what he did with his wife just weeks before, wanting to name his son after the father that was never there with the middle name, and the wife saying, what gives? And him walking through that he'd forgiven his own dad and teaching his wife the power of forgiveness. And two weeks later, that call comes. I've been looking for you. Hello, son. And he said, I just cried. Some of us believe in coincidence. Some of us believe in fate and destiny. And some of us believe in God. And for believers, that's a God moment, a God wink if ever there is one. Ron Brown's story, and we'd love to hear yours. Send your stories to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Ron Brown's story, a beauty, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now a story from our own Monty Montgomery and Tim Harwood of Waterloo, Iowa's News Talk, 1540 KXELAM, one of our affiliates. Tim is the author of Ball Hawks, a sports history about the Waterloo Hawks, a professional basketball team. Here's Tim. During the era just after World War II, Waterloo had around 70,000 people, give or take. Waterloo is an industrial city. It's in the middle of the farm belt, but it was the first place where John Deere tractors were ever built. So a big manufacturing base that might have been more reminiscent of a Rust Belt city in Ohio or Indiana or Michigan. But this story isn't about John Deere tractors. It's about basketball. Waterloo Hawks basketball. The Hawks of the late 1940s and into the first years of the 1950s were unique because they were, of course, the only major league level team that Iowa has ever had going beyond Waterloo. It's uh, a unique circumstance for the entire state and Waterloo was in the right place at the right time. But to understand why Waterloo ever had a professional basketball team, we have to go back. Back to the Great Depression. During the Depression era, the best professional basketball players in the United States played for barnstorming teams. Uh, They'd travel around the country. They wouldn't have a set schedule. They'd pick up games as they could find them. And for the real stars of the era, they could make a, a very good living In fact, a better living doing that than they could trying to play for one team that might play two or three games a week. By the latter years of the Depression into the mid to late 1930s, there was a a major league that formed. It was called the National Basketball League eventually. And the name is something of a misnomer if you think of sports that are in the National Basketball Association or the National Football League or the big major leagues that we have today because the game took root in places like Fort Wayne, Indiana and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And there were a variety of reasons for that. They had industrial bases. Many of the teams of that era were owned by companies. And so the players who took those opportunities not only in many cases uh, played basketball, but also worked for the company that might have owned the team or for another large business in the community. The National Basketball League was the preeminent league, though, through World War II. Coming out of the war years, the owners of major arenas in the East primarily, Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, even Chicago Stadium, more toward the Midwest, and others got together and looked at basketball at the pro level as something that could fill their buildings. They, in many cases, had success with college basketball games, particularly at Madison Square Garden during the 1930s and 40s, and thought that they could fill 25 to 30 or maybe more dates in their buildings that otherwise might be idle with professional basketball. They formed their own league, the Basketball Association of America, and for a few years post-World War II, the National Basketball League, the Basketball Association of America competed against each other. And the level of competition rose. It, it became challenging 
to try to get prestige. It became challenging to try to attract top players. There were bidding wars for players in some cases, and that got expensive because there wasn't nearly the money in professional basketball in the 1940s that there is today. It was a matter of determining who would control the future of professional basketball. They came up with a variety of ways to try to approach that situation, but in the off-season between the 1947-48 schedule and the 48-49 season, the Basketball Association of America hijacked four of the NBL's teams in their entirety. They talked the owners of the Minneapolis Lakers and the Fort Wayne Pistons and teams in Rochester, New York and Indianapolis, Indiana into jumping from one league to the other. So the National Basketball League in the summer of 1948 needed teams. They needed to fill out their roster of cities that would be able to make them a viable league. And they were able to add a few different clubs, including a team in Waterloo. The Hawks came into being because they had all the right elements in place. They had a hippodrome building on the National Cattle Congress fairgrounds that could seat seven to 8,000 people. They had a basketball floor that was in place that was brand new. And they had a reputation already for supporting sports teams. They also were in a very fortunate circumstance because a local who had moved on and become a wrestling promoter primarily in Des Moines had come into possession of the team's roster that had played in Toledo, the the franchise uh, rights had gone to a former boxer and, and boxing promoter, wrestling promoter named Pinky George. Pinky had been a, a fighter in the 1920s and uh, ultimately had managed to make a career as a promoter through the Great Depression. He actually managed a couple of boxers who would fight Joe Lewis during their careers uh, as they made their way up to the top of the the boxing world and uh, have a chance at the legendary champion of the era. He had originally intended to bring professional basketball to Des Moines, but the details just didn't come together. There wasn't the kind of support that he was hoping to have. It was challenging to find a venue to put the team in. And so because he was familiar with Waterloo, after having grown up uh, right next door in Cedar Falls, he decided that he'd put the Hawks in the Hippodrome. And uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for that immediately from uh, Waterloo fans who always, uh, I think, felt like the city had a lot to offer. They felt like they had uh, big shoulders for a small city, I think would be a fair way to describe it. And so when they had this opportunity, they jumped at it. But the situation was still untenable between the two leagues. The Basketball Association of America hadn't extinguished the NBL. The National Basketball League was still hanging on. And with bidding wars for players, with the the efforts that both entities were having to put forth to try to claim that they were the preeminent league, it finally became inevitable. And you can tell from the acronyms that the two leagues used the NBL and the BAA would come together. They'd merge and become the NBA. They lost several teams in the process, but Waterloo was determined, the community and its uh, leaders were determined that they were going to keep a team 
in the city and have a chance to play against opponents from New York and Boston and Philadelphia and all of the places that you really do think of as major league destinations then and now. Waterloo had its place as they saw it, as the people of the time saw it, in Major League Basketball. You know, they had players who were all Americans. They had visiting teams coming in that had stars that people knew from their years in college and who had gone on into professional basketball. They had players from the World War II era who had served during the war prior to returning to college and then ultimately becoming professional basketball players. And you've been listening to Tim Harwood of Waterloo, Iowa's News Talk, 1540 KXCLAM, one of our affiliates. And we love these stories coming from our affiliates. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this is a story of a league we all now know and the maturation of professional sports. And hearing about these two leagues finally, in the end, the NBL and the BAA merging to form what we all now know as the NBA. By the way, we had another great story about sports and the maturation of professional sports. And we did a sit down with the author of the book called Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, and particularly the story of Chuck Taylor, who evangelized basketball like Billy Graham did Christianity in the 1920s, 30s and 40s and even into the 50s. And when we come back, more of the story of the Waterloo Hawks, a professional basketball team that no longer exists, but a little piece of American sports history here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of the Waterloo Hawks, who, when we last left off, had joined the newly formed NBA. But before we get into the rest of the story, we have to know who the players on the Hawks were. Here again is Tim Harwood. Arguably the biggest star for the Hawks initially was a player named Harry Boykoff. At one point, he actually held the scoring record for Madison Square Garden as a college player, a big guy, a a lanky center, and uh, not particularly fleet of foot, but had a, a tremendous personality at the same time actually had played for a season in Toledo before he came to Waterloo. He chose the NBL because the team in Toledo offered to get him a job that would uh, keep him busy. He was an accounting major at St. John's and so wanted to put his business skills to use. Took an offer to go play in Toledo because they could promise him a job during the offseason that uh, would supplement his basketball income. Another All-American player uh, was from the University of Tennessee's named Dick Meehan, and he was the biggest scoring star for the Waterloo Hawks during their season in 1948-49 when they were in the National Basketball League. He was among the top scorers in the league that season. Meehan actually was, uh, I believe, in the Air Force. At that point, it would have been the Army Air Corps during World War II. It was quite a bit different in that era. 
Today we think of athletes regardless of their sport training year-round, and it's a full-time job to be an athlete in that era, the 1940s and into the 1950s. Players would arrive at the start of the season, and uh, they'd have a couple of weeks, and that would be when they would be getting in shape. And uh, during the off-season, there wasn't a tremendous amount of training. There weren't a lot of rules regarding what players could do with their time. There were some players, actually, in the era, and you don't see this at the NBA level today that I can think of in any sense, where uh, there were players that in some cases would play professional sports. They might be uh, baseball players in the summertime, play basketball in the winter. So when they would arrive in the fall, they would uh, train for a few weeks. They'd play a few preseason games uh, strung together and uh, and dive right into the schedule after that. It's interesting that a lot of players had off-season jobs. Typical average player's contract as a professional basketball athlete in the 40s and 50s might have been in the range of $4,500 $4,500 a year, 5000 Some were less, some were more. Although that was a reasonably good amount of money to be making for six months, for many players who were college-educated, who had aspirations to, to be executives or to have careers that uh, would be fitting for their college degrees, they were working some other job in the off-season on the assumption that they were only going to be professional basketball players for a few years and they'd have a whole lifetime ahead of them where they would need to earn an income. Waterloo's first NBA game was actually against the New York Knicks in October of 1949. And it was a tremendous way to start Waterloo's time in this new league after being what they considered a a major league basketball city for one year now to begin the second season of major league professional basketball the hawks were hosting the new york knicks it was waterloo in northeast iowa literally over a thousand miles away hosting a team that had come in on their own private rail car from new york and uh, that was the epitome it was the team from new york and that's all that mattered and so waterloo on opening night in 1949-50 Uh, hosted the the Knicks and uh, hung with them. But New York took that game by the final of 68 to 60. Just a few days later, the Hawks beat the Boston Celtics four days after hosting the New York Knicks and beat them pretty soundly, 80 to 66. And uh, that was the first win for Waterloo against an opponent in the National Basketball Association. In a lot of ways, that's the highlight of the Hawks' story. But teams like the Knicks and the Philadelphia Warriors, Boston Celtics, weren't particularly excited about putting Waterloo Hawks on their marquee. And so they found some creative ways to get around hosting home games against Waterloo. They would play doubleheaders where that say the team in Philadelphia might play the team from Baltimore. And the undercard game, the early game, was New York versus Waterloo, and that would be in Philadelphia. And then Waterloo would be in New York, for example, and might play Baltimore or Philadelphia while the Knicks played 
a more prestigious opponent, at least a more prestige in terms of the city that they came from. So the Hawks did play in Madison Square Garden just before Christmas in 1949, but they didn't play the Knicks. They played the Philadelphia Warriors instead, and the Knicks had a different opponent that night. But they they did end up seeing just about all of the major venues of the era that were hosting professional basketball and uh, just wasn't against the team that you might have expected on the opposite bench. In the 1948-49 season, the the Hawks were competitive. They were very successful early on, and uh, you could say that they they ran out of gas. You could argue that they were either the sixth or the seventh best team in the nine-team National Basketball League. During that season and into the start of the 1949-1950 NBA season, uh, the Hawks were a slower, more methodical team. But they weren't as athletic as some of the opponents that they faced. And that was probably their downfall. They also dealt with some injuries, particularly in the 1948-49 season that slowed them down when things appeared to otherwise be going along pretty well. And the Hawks finished near the bottom of their division, fifth out of six teams in 1949-50. In the spring of 1950, there was a sentiment among the large cities, among the owners, among the media, that a city like New York and a city like Waterloo or Sheboygan, Wisconsin, shouldn't be in the same league. They, they weren't on par as far as some of the owners saw it and as far as many of the columnists for the major papers saw it. So the National Basketball Association worked through a couple of ideas that they thought might push some of the smaller city teams out of the NBA. They, uh, for example, had to put up a $50,000 performance bond where if the team couldn't operate, ran out of money, couldn't pay its players, couldn't make its road trips, and failed to be a functioning entity within the NBA, that $50,000 bond would be forfeited. It had to be backed by an insurance company or a bank. And well, the Hawks and the Sheboygan Redskins were able to manage that because they had tremendous community support in both cases. And so they went to the league meetings in April of 1950, and ultimately the rest of the league voted to exclude Waterloo, Sheboygan, and Denver from the scheduling process. That was really the end for Major League Professional Basketball in Waterloo. I'd like to read something from the local paper, the Waterloo Courier. This was an article from just a few years after Waterloo had had a team in the NBA. Recapping the era, uh, the article says, the fortunes of pro basketball fluctuated and even when crowds were good, there was one difficulty or another, sometimes a losing season, sometimes mounting expenses, and sometimes strife within a league itself. Waterloo pro basketball fans always have insisted that the city would be in the NBA today if the big city members had not forced out smaller cities. I think that captures the sentiment of Waterloo in the early 1950s and the disappointment that many people felt that they'd had something and it had been taken away from them. And in many ways, that's why the story of the Waterloo Hawks 
isn't really well known today, even in Waterloo itself, because at the time, the people who had made it happen, who had made basketball viable in Waterloo at the highest level of pro basketball at the time, I think really felt a disappointment. It wasn't something that they wanted to brag about. We look at it today as being a major accomplishment for a city of 70 or 80,000 people to have a team playing against opponents from New York and Philadelphia and Boston. And you've been listening to Tim Harwood of Waterloo, Iowa's News Talk 1540 KXELAM, one of our affiliates. Tim is the author of Ball Hawks, a sports history book about the Waterloo Hawks. And they again were a professional basketball team, a part of the NBA for a very brief time. And of course, they, Waterloo, Waterloo, Sheboygan, and Denver, a very small town at the time, were all pushed out of the NBA. What a story about a time and place. That players had part-time jobs, actually almost full-time jobs, two jobs. Ball player half the year, an accountant or whatever, the other half. My dad had played college basketball, was friends with Tommy Heinsohn, who played on the Boston Celtics for half the year and drove trucks. The other half would one day come to coach the Boston Celtics when the league professionalized and changed. And I sometimes wonder about Green Bay, because this small city... Well, the NFL kept them, and they have a powerhouse of a team. And a special thanks to Monty Montgomery for producing this piece, Tim Harwood's story of the Waterloo Hawks, here on Our American Stories.